welcome to another episode of Banter. I'm Max Frost. Here with me today is... Matt Weinstein. That's right. We're joined today by AEI scholar Aparna Mathur, who discusses a new op-ed she has coming out about why we need more, not less, low-skill immigration in the U.S. And I have to say, despite being initially kind of skeptical, she makes a very compelling case, which is understandable. Uh, She's a great resident scholar here at AEI. She holds a PhD in economics from the University of Maryland. And I've talked with her before about her research on paid family leave and syntaxes. And I've got to say, she's equally expert in labor issues such as immigration. So it's a great show. Hope you enjoy it. And uh, without further ado, here's Aparna. Aparna, thank you for coming on Banter today. Thanks a lot for having me. So we wanted to have you on to talk about this forthcoming op-ed you have coming out in either Forbes or Fox Business, in which you write, policies that restrict immigration, particularly for low-skill workers, are likely to have equally negative long-term impacts on the economy as policies that restrict high-skill immigration. Now, you're the economist here, not me, so I'll mm-hmm. defer to your wisdom. But I have to say, this does seem to cut against you know, like conven- popular conventional wisdom mm-hmm. and just my own intuitions a little bit. So can you just go into and explain what you mean by that? Right. So what I wanted to highlight was, you know, it's easy to make a case for high-skilled immigration, right? We look at the number of uh, outside students, myself included, who got a PhD in the U.S. and who went on and had great careers and, you know, how much the outside scientists are contributing to innovation and productivity growth and so on. I think what's less talked about is the case for low-skill immigration and and the fact that the U.S. economy is increasingly reliant on low-skill workers to fill a ton of positions that, you know, we that are really very useful and essential for our day-to-day living, you know, in construction and plumbing and carpentry, electricians. Um, If you look at the agricultural sector, there there are all of these positions are increasingly being being taken over by uh, foreign-born workers. You know, native workers are less and less likely to occupy these positions. And, And so when you sort of talk about, you know, should we restrict immigration and especially for low-skill workers? I think what I wanted to point out was that, look, you know, we don't talk enough about low-skill immigration, but these workers are equally valuable. Uh, and while it's easy to make a case for high-skill immigration, it's also equally interesting and relevant to make a case for low-skill immigration because there are tons of jobs that would disappear, a ton of employers who would suddenly you know, see major labor shortages if these workers were no longer allowed to be in the country. So to play devil's advocate a little bit, yeah. though, should, are these not jobs that or why are Americans, native born Americans, not taking these jobs and should they not be taking these jobs? What is the issue there? Right. And I and I don't think the question is, should they not be taking these jobs? I think what what we're just seeing in the data is that a lot of uh, native born workers are just not you know, no longer wanting these jobs. So if you look at, so an interesting op-ed that I, that I, or a study that I did earlier was looking at the manufacturing sector. And we said, look, there are all these, uh, you know, when President Trump was campaigning and he said, look, we need to get manufacturing jobs back. And there's somehow this notion in people's minds that manufacturing jobs have disappeared overseas, that, you know, those jobs no longer exist in the U.S. But if you look at the data, we actually have like, um, you know, thousands of job openings in 
in manufacturing. It's just that employers say, well, we can't find the right workers to fill these positions. And so when you dig deeper and say, well, what are these skills? Or, you know, why is it that people don't want to fill these positions? Um, you talk to younger workers and a lot of them say, well, I don't want, you know, these, these kinds of jobs anymore. You know, I want to go and get go to college and I want to get a nice degree and I want to go on and have, you know, a professional job. Whereas these kinds of positions, uh, if you look at the skill trades like carpentry, plumbing, you know, um, if you look at manufacturing, uh, people still tend to think of these as dirty jobs, you know, as dirty trades or factory jobs that existed, you know, f- four decades ago and that, you know, parents don't want their kids to go into these positions. And so I, I do think that there is an what I call an image gap about these industries and these trades. You know, you look at manufacturing, manufacturing has actually become very high tech. You know, it's not the guy sitting on a factory floor and, and you know, putting together products. It's really, there's, you know, high tech machinery. And, and what you really need are people who can operate that and work in conjunction with high tech equ- equipment. Uh, but so some of it is the perception problem that I don't want these kinds of jobs. And and the second is, yeah, you know, in the skill trades, the kind of, kind of job you do, you know, does tend to be very labor intensive. And I think there has been a shift away um, from, for people, uh, you know, away from these ki- these kinds of jobs. And so I, I suspect that that's a big reason why foreign-born workers are much more likely to come in. They're filling in these positions at much higher rates than native workers. Um, and also the Great Recession had a lot to do with it. You know, when, when you sort of look at... Uh, employers in construction, they say, well, yeah, you know, after the Great Recession, when a, a lot of these positions disappeared, you know, a lot of these jobs were lost, people just never came back. The native workforce just never came back to these uh, construction jobs. And, and that's another reason why we're filling, um, you know, filling it with foreign bond workers who are much more willing to take on uh, take on this work. But isn't there an argument to be made that when we say, like, of course, there's a perceptions issue and a skills yeah. issue? Um, But couldn't you also say it's not that people don't want these jobs, it's that they don't want these jobs at these wages. I was going to make the same point. One thing you hear from a lot of immigration restrictionists is that if we had had tighter controls over immigration, these companies would then raise their wages or – devote more money to skills training or they would mm-hmm. they would take the burden upon themselves to train native born workers. Yeah. Is that not valid? And that's absolutely right. I mean you some of it could be that you know our workers, native workers are not willing to work uh, at the wages that are offered by employers. A lot of times employers also say that even if we face tight labor markets and we're willing to offer these wages, you know, people are just not willing to come into these jobs. So I do think it's a mix of both. I absolutely agree with you, you know, and we're seeing that in the data now with the labor market tightening. A lot of employers are reaching out to groups that they traditionally would not have looked at and said, okay, you know, we're going to provide you the training and we'll let you, uh, you know, and then you can occupy these positions and we're going to pay you better wages. So that all is a natural consequence of sort of what happens with the economy. But I think, uh, you know, even aside from that, I think they're just, uh, it's a, so, so for instance, if you take the skill trades, I mean, you look at the BLS definition of what an entry level requirement is, and it's literally like minimal education and minimal training. You, you can walk into the position and it's really, you know, you're like an apprentice and you get trained on 
on the job. So it's not as if, you know, these employers are saying, well, we're not going to provide you the training because there's no way that you can hire workers, a construction worker or, um, you know, somebody in these trades to just come on onto these positions and then, you know, occupy them and without actually getting the training. So they are training them. But I think even despite that, uh, and there's a range of wages, you know, again, for very, uh, at the lower end, uh, wages can be pretty low. You could get something like 25000 to, you know, $30,000, $40,000 a year. But there are, uh, you if you stick, stick on, there's the possibility that you could rise up to a slightly more managerial and professional position and, and wages do go up. So it is, uh, I, I think it's still, uh, a lot of it is um, sort of this desire to not actually, you know, be in these positions. I think uh, that does play a big part. Uh, but of course, you know, if you suddenly had wages spike up, I'm sure a lot more people would be willing to to just jump in and say, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to I'm going to do this. And and that's also true when you look at sort of the farming, uh, you know, the agriculture sector, where um, you know we keep saying, well. If, if employers were offering higher wages, you know, why would we not get more native workers to come in? Uh, but again, a lot of employers say, well, we do that. You know, we, we still we, we do do that when we still have all these vacancies. And yes, you know, these workers are willing to come and, and supply the labor and, and they're, they're actually not complaining about the work that they're doing. Whereas if you get somebody who probably has um, bigger aspirations or whatever is and is not as happy, then you also see higher turnover and people sort of, you know, quitting and moving on. So, yeah, I think both arguments coexist. I think there's definitely a case to be made that if these industries were higher paying, you know, would more native workers go in? That also means that a lot of those costs will then have to be passed on to consumers, right? I mean, those costs have to be borne somewhere. So, so I think there's also reluctance on the part of businesses to say, yeah, you know, we're going to pay you these fancy wages because we don't know if we can actually recover the costs by pricing more. Yeah, when I hear that argument, I think it's not like businesses just have unlimited money to yeah. just raise wages as high as they possibly can. Um, there's a different debate among economists. So my understanding is it seems like almost all economists agree that immigration does not lower native-born wages. Yeah. Certainly not. And there might be different levels based on right. the skill level. The one or the most prominent economist I think who does make that argument is George Borges. Mm-hmm. Bor- Borges. Borges, yeah. yeah how, however you say it, yeah. from Harvard. But and I mean, even he says in his book, We Wanted Workers, that Immigration raises raises wages for most school groups, but among, I think, uh, native-born workers with only high school education, yeah. it can depress their wages. Do you, but then plenty of other economists agree with them. Where do you come down on that debate? So I think, you know, it's absolutely, you know, you as an economist, you would say, well, there's a limited number of jobs. And if you have more foreign-born workers coming in, then maybe, you know, they're competing away jobs from existing workers. But that could happen within the native population. That could happen within the foreign-born population. The question is, you know, how tight is the labor market? How many, you know, are, what are employers willing to do? Um, uh I, I don't think there's been a definitive way to 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 say well this is the impact of foreign-born workers on immigrant wage uh, on native wages. You know there are arguments both ways. There are interesting sort of uh, experiments uh, that economists have tried to do to figure this out. I think in general it's absolutely true. You know it depends on which which market you're you're functioning in. Certain labor markets might be more adversely impacted than others. Uh, 
what what I keep coming back to is the fact that look, there are still all these job openings. You know, when you look at the trades that people typically talk about, you know, like low skill foreign workers coming in and taking these positions, it's not as if all the positions are gone. You know, even within uh, construction, uh, about thirty percent of twenty five to thirty percent of uh, positions are filled by immigrant workers. But we still have a tremendous number of job openings. I mean, these trades are saying, look, we are going to have a huge, uh, you know, huge number of vacancies going forward. We expect unfilled positions. You know, we want more workers to come in. So, so I can see that, you know, that constraint could be binding in certain very local labor markets. But if you look at the country as a whole, I mean, we we still have a massive, you know, thousands of unfilled positions in in the skill trades and you know, in agriculture and manufacturing. Why are those positions not being filled? You know, it's not as if immigrants are hundred uh, percent of those positions, or that you know, employers are perfectly satisfied that look, we're paying these low wages and all these workers are coming in. No, they're still saying we need more workers to come in. We need you know, even native workers to come in. Why aren't they coming back after the recession? Where where did the where did they go? So I, I don't think employers are biased against native workers, or you know, that there's this uh, if if we had to choose between a foreign and a native-born worker, yeah, you know, wages will play a role. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, they still have a massive number of job openings. And uh, I think what we need to figure out is, well, why are those matches not happening? Why are workers not, you know, going in to fill these positions? Why are employers still talking about labor shortages uh, in an economy where, you know, hopefully everybody, you know, should be able to find a, find a job if they need one? So to put some context to this, when we talk about low-skill immigrants, are they almost all from Latin America? So I think the wave of immigration has changed over time. I think the majority today are from, um, you know, uh, Latin America. Uh, but we also see, uh, and, and that tends to be the low-skill workers. That's absolutely true. Um, High-skill immigration comes from, like, Europe and, you know, the Asian Asian economy. So so I do think, you know, there have been waves of where these workers come from. But currently, um, you know, they do tend to be mainly Hispanic, um, Latin American workers. Okay. And then, well, and beyond that, so what what is the relative share of high-skilled versus low-skilled immigration in the economy? That's a good question. I think the estimates I have seen are that they're either half or low-skilled immigration is actually, oh, you mean uh, just overall immigration? I think overall... Um, Again, it varies from industry to industry. In aggregate, I think some studies say it could be about 50% of all immigrants who are in the labor market. So about 50% are occupying low-skill positions and about, you know, 50% are in high-skill in high-skill jobs, which is why I think that this is, you know, this is something that needs to be talked about more. Um, uh, you know, we keep talking about the value of high-skill workers, but we are actually increasingly absorbing a lot of low-skill immigrants and, um, you know, we, we need to be conscious of just how much they're contributing to economic growth to, uh, you know, we talk about how labor force participation rates are low. What you actually find is labor force participation rates among foreign-born workers are marginally higher Mm -hmm. than amongst native workers. And again, as I said, for certain industries, they're very, very critical. In construction, they're like 30% of of the workforce and agriculture. Also, they're increasingly, um, uh, you know, uh, becoming more and more important. They're a big chunk of the workforce there. If you look at at, uh, you know, 
special uh, sort of services like personal uh, personal care workers or home health aides. They're increasingly about twenty to twenty five percent, according to a Pew survey. They're a big chunk of the of the workforce there. Um, so uh, you know, it's hard to sort of overstate the 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 contribution that these workers are making. Uh, of course, as a proportion of the entire labor force, I think legal immigration uh, is about fifteen percent of the of the total workforce. So it's so not to overstate that you know they're they're occupying all sorts of positions uh, across the economy, but they are still about fifteen to seventeen percent of the workforce. But within that, I think the split between uh, uh, high skill and low skill is pretty even. I'm going to try to be the stand-in for just the every man American here. Yeah. Every, every, every person, American voter, whatever. The last poll I think I saw was that 37% of Americans would like to decrease immigration levels. But that means a pretty substantial majority wants to at least keep them the same or even yeah. increase immigration levels. But what could be the argument against kind of rejiggering how the, the skills mix to vastly favor high-skill immigration? Because I'm, I'm trying to think just – there's one summer I was a construction worker mm-hmm. in, in North Virginia – and doing like pools and for houses and a lot out in um, like, you know, Ashburn and places. And a huge number of those pools that we were building were for or recent, I think first generation, second generation immigrants, Asian Americans, yeah. Indian Americans, all sorts of people. And it seems like that type of immigration, yeah. maybe most Americans don't think of, but obviously benefits America. These high school immigra- immigrants come in, they make a lot of money. Yeah. They use that money to demand, they increase yeah, demand for services. Yeah. On the other hand, I was working side by side. The vast majority of the workforce were, uh, I guess, what technically would be classified as low-skill immigrants. Mm-hmm. And if we, and then if a lot of low-skill immigrants come in, it seems like common sense that they would then bid down the wages that they mm-hmm. could demand for this type of work. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how how this anecdote can be extrapolated yeah. for the rest of the economy, but it seems like that would, if we want to raise wages for all people in America right now, it seems like letting in a hugely higher number amount of high-skill immigrants and possibly a lower amount of low-skill immigrants would be the correct policy. It depends. Again, you know, Matt, it would depend a lot on what labor, what you know section of the economy you're looking at. I think employers, you know, unless we want to, as consumers, like remember that there are benefits to, uh, to the economy as a whole, um, no, I'm not going to say from from keeping wages low, but there is a certain you know amount that consumers are willing to absorb. You know, imagine if people were charging exorbitant amounts for doing you know, like home plumbing or you know elect, electric electricians. I mean, I already feel like you know we we pay a lot every time somebody steps into my home. <laughs> yeah. But there's a limit, I think, to how much uh, higher even employers are willing. To start charging their customers, so so I, you know, I when I look at this debate, I don't, I I agree that you need to have a basic, you know, like we say, we maybe a higher minimum wage, maybe, or more supports for low income workers, uh, but I think you know there is there are natural limits to how much businesses feel comfortable passing on these costs to consumers. So I don't, you know, I I don't view this as should we get in more foreign born workers because we want to artificially, you know keep uh, wages low for for people in construction i think businesses are 
naturally trying to pay workers to attract them to their field. I mean, it, to me, it, it's more a lo- labor shortage situation for these businesses rather than, oh, we have a surplus of workers and so let's keep wages low because anybody is willing to work here. You know, when the more you look at the data, you realize, well, they, they keep saying we have labor shortages. You know, why are workers not coming into these trades? Why are workers not coming into farming? So I think, um, you know, if we guarantee a basic, you know, minimum income wage, basic living standards, you have, you know, that could mean regulations and how how many hours of work are put in, you know, what's the what safety regs you have in there and stuff like that. I think once you have basic working conditions being met, uh, it's really you have to let the market play out. And if that means that, you know, these uh, foreign born workers are more willing to stay in these positions longer and are willing to compete with native born workers, you know, that's the market playing out. Um, In terms of immigration policies, you know, what I think what a lot of employers will say is that even if you don't want to give them permanent uh, status within the country, at least in agriculture and and these kind of trades that, you know, where there's a demand for seasonal workers, having temporary programs that allow workers to come in from, you know, uh, Mexico and, and other places would be just great. You know, they, they're not looking for sort of this long term, we need a, a huge workforce that, that is going to stay with us. They understand that the nature of the job is seasonal and there's a high rate of turnover. You know, having, even allowing temporary status to these workers would work for these industries. I think across skill trades, you know, it doesn't matter what what kind of visa or you know status you allow them it's really we we are filling a need for the economy by by allowing workers to come in and, and i think if we restrict that uh, you know, we would see much worse consequences for, for the economy than, than we imagine, you know, given that people don't recognize just how much certain sectors rely on these workers. And also, when you look at, you know, sort of the economy as a whole, like we're we're not seeing massive increases, like population growth rates are, are falling, fertility rates are at an all time low. When, when economists look at the labor market and say, well, what do we need to increase economic growth and productivity? We need more workers and, you, and we need more workers to be contributing. We need more workers in in jobs that could be high skilled or low skilled because it takes a lot to keep the economy going. It's not just, you know, you don't just need the innovators at the top. You need the people at the bottom. Uh, And so everybody, uh, you know, everybody is valuable. And I think that's the message that we need to send. And you can have, you know, smart policies that say, okay, uh, you know, maybe this is a temporary position. If the worker is productive enough, we're going to keep them in, which is what we tend to do with high skilled workers. Uh, You know, I came in on an H-1B. I didn't get uh, a green card right away. I didn't get citizenship right away. You work your way uh, into the system. And that's and that's how, you know, we can have that pathway, even for low skilled workers, um, if we, you know, as long as we learn to value them. So um, to shift the conversation slightly here, you mentioned earlier about the kind of skills mismatch mm-hmm. um, where you just don't have people graduating either high school or college yeah. with the skills needed by firms um, in the economy. What policies are in place to deal with that and what policies should be in place to deal with that? Yeah, that's a good question. So the skills gap issue is very interesting. You know, again, a lot of economists will say, well, there's not really a skills gap issue. You know, as Matt said, maybe employers are just, you know, it's it's not the it's a, it's not a tight labor market. They can afford to hire somebody who has everything that they're looking for and then just, you know, be willing to take them on. Just, or just to jump in real quick, yeah. I spend way too much time on my of my time on Twitter and it seems like the <laughs> skills gap was kind of a hobby horse of yeah. like more lefty Twitter. They all hated the idea of the skills yeah. gap because they just thought 
you know, businesses, businesses should be doing just, this. I mean, yeah. businesses are just lazy. They want their government to take care of a problem. That's exactly. Yeah. So, but I've always, you know, when you actually talk to employers, like I think that there is some uh, argument to be made for the skills gap. I think a lot of employers in manufacturing, as I pointed out, tend to say, well, our positions are not the positions of four decades ago. You know, we, we actually don't need somebody to, uh, you know, sort of uh, put the product together by hand. It's really a very, it, it really does require computing skills. It requires, you know, you you knowing a basic level of technology and having, you know, not just those tech kind of skills, but also just good soft skills to work in a team and so on. So a lot of employers, you know, honestly feel, I think, that there is the that the workers who are coming out of college are just not ready to occupy the positions that, that they are offering them. And they on their own, like you see uh, computer, you know, companies, uh, tech companies doing this, like Google and Microsoft will tell kids in college, you know, you don't need to graduate, come in, you know, we'll teach you everything you need to do on the job. You know, and, and that's literally what we are starting to see, I think, across a lot of sectors across. um, And in some states like South Carolina, they're actually offering, um, uh, you know, apprenticeship programs. So so Carolina has an apprenticeship Carolina uh, program that is that basically offers an employer tax credit to companies that are willing to take on, uh, you know, younger kids from high school or community colleges and say, look, come and train with us on the job. We'll actually pay you you know, a basic um, minimum for the year, but we'll train you to do the position that we want you to occupy after that two-year training. And so I think the advantage of those kinds of programs is that, uh, you know, workers are not, like students are not taking on a ton of debt just to finish four year a four year college degree and then graduating and saying look I didn't get you know my uh, two hundred thousand dollar job that will let me pay off my student loans uh, they're actually making money and they're getting the training that they need and I think we need much more of that. Yeah across the country because uh, they you know we all see it in our in our in our lives I mean technology has just skyrocketed you know and if you're if you're still doing the same thing that colleges were teaching you 40 years ago and you're still you know with some updates still doing that uh, it, it is very likely that you're not getting uh, you know exactly the training that you need to actually occupy the positions in certain sectors that have become much more high skilled over time so I have some sympathy for that argument at the same time time, you know, I, I do think companies, when they feel that need, will do invest in training, are offering these kinds of programs on their own. Uh, but I but I think we need much more of that if we really want to, you know, sort of make sure that our kids, when they graduate from college, have job opportunities open to them, that they're not then stuck saying, okay, I did this four-year college degree, I have a ton of student debt, but I don't really have a job that's going to help me pay it off. So we're almost out of time, so I'll have to ask just one more question here. As you've mentioned, there's millions of job openings across the country. Unemployment is at its lowest rate in a long time now. And yet labor force participation rate in America is not, I think it's actually worse now than it was in 2000. So let's say that uh, President Trump calls you in and says, I really need just two policies that are going to increase our labor force participation rate. Mm -hmm. What do you tell him? So I do think one would be immigration, especially because I think, uh, you know, there seems to be a ton of debate about whether immigration matters and is it helpful to the economy. And I, and I would definitely say, look, we need to look at the data and we need to realize just how valuable immigrants are, both high skill and low skill immigrants. And yes, you know, you can have reasonable a reasonable conversation about what that immigration policy should look like. But recognizing the value of these workers is key. Um, I, I think a second issue, which is 
very core to my wor- other work is looking at paid family and medical leave policies and uh, and their specific uh, specifically you know what i worry about is women's labor force participation and the fact that women are dropping out of the workforce or their labor force is, uh, participation rates are stagnating relative to other developed economies because we don't have policies in the workplace that let people take time off for caregiving that let them take time off from work when they have a baby that you know that allow them to sort of balance work and family so i think if we you know we we tend to talk uh, a lot about sort of look what the opioid crisis is doing to labor force participation and incarceration rates and I think all of that is valuable but I think there's a whole sort of you know gender aspect to labor force participation as well and so adopting sort of federal paid family and medical leave policies would be equally critical I think to advancing labor force participation I would love to talk about that further so maybe sounds like a sequel band yeah, yeah. For another time <laughs> absolutely all right thank until you. The, Aparna thank you for coming on thanks so much for having me thank you this was great Well, everyone, thanks for listening. We hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment on Banter, on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, wherever else you find podcasts. Uh, Matt, thoughts? Have you heard the old story about Truman and the economists? No. How Truman apparently demanded that they finally bring him a one-handed economist because he's tired of them saying, well, you know, on the one hand, Mr. President, there's this. But on, <laughs> but on the other hand, there's this. I felt a little bit like that at times throughout this episode where I'd bring up a point and she would say, you know, that's a very valid point and here's X, Y, and Z why, you know, economists agree with that. But, you know, economists also say this other thing, yeah. um, which is, I mean, you know, way more accurate than pundits like us just pontificating off, just beating the same drum over and over. She had definitely the more measured perspective, but... It was nice at the end to, when she gave her two very concrete things that she would tell the president. Yeah, although I don't know how well that uh, low-skill immigration recommendation will go over in the current administration. But Yeah, but there's an election coming up. Yeah. So, well, in, in, in any event, no, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think on any of these topics, the economics are so murky. And it's so, it's so hard to know. I mean, you know, for every person you, can, you find who says one thing. I think on the immigration stuff, it's pretty, there's a, definitely a preponderance of evidence saying we need more of it, not less of it. Yeah. So. Yeah, but still the mix also matters, yeah. is what they say. But I don't know. You're the one on the econ program. Are you studying any immigration economics right now? I am not. I have an exam in a financial economics course this week. Oh, well, um, good study, luck. Studying for that. We wish you the best of luck. Uh, if you also wish him luck, please email <laughs> us at, at banterdatei.org and say good luck and, and you know whatever else you want to say. I'd appreciate that very much. Yeah, until then, we'll be back next week with Brent Orell. He's another uh, scholar here at AEI. He's got some very interesting stuff to say on Adam Smith and the U.S. labor market and, you know, philosophy and, and whatever else. It'll be good. We'll see you then.